Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. At Stand Up Tragedy what we do is we bring together people from different parts of the arts, comedians, storytellers, spoken word artists, musicians and more and we get them to stand up and do tragedy. We want to make people cry until they laugh and laugh until they cry and we try to provide a safe space to talk about unsafe things. Today's episode is the last podcast of the year and it's a special podcast for a few different reasons, one of which is there's some news to talk about. Stand Up Tragedy is basically taking a hiatus for the next year. Not a complete hiatus, the live shows will not be running next year, we're not going to do our general Stand Up Tragedy variety night, but we will be doing some Stand Up Tragedy Presents nights. The next one of those is on the 18th of February at the Dog Star in Brixton and it's my show, What About the Men, Mansplaining Masculinity and a show by the comedian Jambi McGrath and her show is A Last Dance with My Father. So that's the next opportunity for you to see some stand-up tragedy live but like I say, we're taking a little bit of a step off the gas for the next year. There's a few reasons for that, one of which is that stand-up tragedy has been amazing. Like, we've really got to a really high standard and all of the episodes that we've put out this year and all of the shows that we've run this year have really hit with what stand-up tragedy wanted to be, with what I wanted stand-up tragedy to be when I first set up the show. And it's good if you're going to take a hiatus to go out with a bang before you go. So since the show was doing so well, it seemed like a good moment to do that. The other reason is because I want to find some ways of making some money from doing what I do and if you'd like to help me to do that there's a PayPal donate button on the Stand Up Tragedy website. If you want to throw some money towards the tragedy that's the place to do that and also I want to work on some other creative projects that I have and really focus on them. But like I say Stand Up Tragedy isn't going away completely. Not only will we have Stand Up Tragedy Presents we'll also have a few podcasts going out through the year the first part of 2016 in fact is going to be quite busy as we'll be putting out all of the stand-up tragedy presents shows that we've done so far another thing that i want to tell you and i want to spread the word about is i'm definitely really open to people putting on their own versions of stand-up tragedy and expanding the franchise if you like so if you're interested in hosting a stand-up tragedy show then reach out to me at upstandingtragedy at gmail.com If you are thinking about taking on a stand-up tragedy franchise and you live in London or nearby, I would recommend Stephen Harvey, or Harv as we all call him, the person who does all of stand-up tragedy's sound stuff. So he's on the desks at the live shows and he records the audio and he also mixes it down. Harv is great at what he does. He's also a great friend of mine i've known him a long time we used to be in a band called apples for everyone at our height we had 15 different members and there was bagpipes there was trumpets there was keyboards there was electric guitars there was flute there was violin there was all sorts of things and harv was the guy that tried to keep that chaos together so when i started stand up tragedy four years ago harv was the first person i spoke to about it and he's been on board from the start and he's been a solid foundation for the show to stand on and in today's episode he's going to be the one who's selecting his favorite clips from the last four years of doing the show we recorded late last night 
after we'd been drinking with some friends. It's outside in the middle of the night. It's badly recorded because I was not at my optimum recording ability. So it'll be us talking about the clips late at night, followed by some amazing pieces of tragedy, a couple of which are a little bit Christmassy, so it's a little bit appropriate for the season. The first choice I've picked is the start of a set that the Mechanisms did for us, I think it was last year, last October, and it's a sort of intro of their set and a version of the old King Cole fairy tale. The Mechanisms! Killers and renegades, liars and thieves, we are the Mechanisms. A band of immortal space pirates roaming the universe on the starship Aurora. Having fun, violence, adventure, violence, tr- violence, it's mainly violence. In our time among the stars, we've seen many things, some beautiful, some horrible. This story falls most definitely into the latter category. Once upon a time, In a far-off sector of a very old galaxy, there lived a king. Long ago, he was a good king, a wise king. There were even those that called him Merry. But the treatments and technology that had extended his life throughout the millennia had warped his mind as they had withered his body. And soon his soul grew red with the lust for conquest. Old King Cole was a brutal soul, and a bloody red soul had he. He called for his mead and his gun so cold, and he called for his little pigs three. Now every piggy had a razor blade and sharpened it with glee. Oh, far and near, they all learn fear from King Cole and his little pigs three. Factories churn, bodies burn, stars are shining bright. It's your turn, now you learn how King Cole feasts tonight. Old King Cole was not missold, of years he had a hundred score. The dark appliance of infernal science would give him millennia more. And he would watch as the suns burned out, collapsing from their car. Oh, never to forgive he would eternal live, his hands dyed red by gore. Factories churn, bodies burn, stars are shining bright. It's your turn, now you learn how King Cole feasts tonight. Old King Cole had conquered and stole the wealth of a thousand sons. Surrounded was he by bodyguards three who murdered for their sovereign's fun. Arrayed in armor black as ebony, it did no good to run. What? Ever your task, the grim pick mask would tell you that your life was done. Factories turn, bodies burn, stars are shining bright. It's your turn, now you learn how King Cold feasts tonight. In the center of Xantine, capital city of New Constantinople, there stood a vast palace. Cavernous chambers by their hundreds were cared for by staff too numerous to count. While below, tunnels and passageways unused for a dozen lifetimes sprawled under the city like a spider's web, reaching every nook and lurking place. Somewhere, 
In the center of this labyrinth stood a small, unremarkable room, roughly hewn from thick black rock, where King Cole sat on his white throne. His shriveled form seemed all the more withered on its ivory bulk, surrounded as always by the three little pigs, silent guardians who never moved nor spoke as the blood pooled on the floor before their ruler. The feast was soon to begin. The mechanisms, they do long form, really, so it was hard to fit them in. We did a whole, like, middle act. Yeah, mechanism. yeah, so we gave them a whole act, and we don't really have bands yeah. um, at Stand Up Tragedy much, so they're, like, one of the only two, like, sort of full bands we've right. really had. And they were a really big band. Which yeah, yeah, there's loads of them. And, and Luckily, you're fun. used to that, because yeah. we used to be in a band together, which was a big band, yeah. so at least you had that. Yeah. And they were good to do. So what's your next choice? Huh? Next choice is... James Ross is a comedian that we've had on loads. I think we had, I think he may have been on. We may have had him in every season. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we all saw his Edinburgh show. Yeah, it's definitely, it was one of my favourite really shows great. that I saw yeah. this year. Uh, so this is what he did for us in Edinburgh this year. James Ross. Um, I should mention in advance that I am supposed to be a comedian, ladies and gentlemen, just in case that doesn't come across. That, that is the intention of the piece. Just, yeah, anyway. uh, yes, so um, you know, it's a real pleasure to be here, ladies and gentlemen, back at Stand Up Tragedy. Because you know, I go up and down the country doing gigs in all of these places. And, uh, you know, and uh, you know, the best gigs, ladies and gentlemen, are as beautiful and uh, fascinating and distinctive as a first-year humanities undergraduate believes his opinions. And, uh, and this is very much one of those gigs. So it's, it's a real pleasure to be back. Um, yes, so um, I have a, a bit of a tragic tale for you, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, oh yes, it's a one-man panto. It's going to be great. <laughs> uh, yes, um, now, um, it has been said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, that, that every man has his price. Uh, and I happen to know exactly what mine is. Uh, I hesitate to ask, but any guesses? No pounds. Great. Fine. I'm I'm wrong with that. Not a problem. Um, Now, um, a little bit of information uh, before we begin, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I am, I am, I am quite left-wing. I may have picked up on that already, as I wear the, obviously, you know, I wear the tweed jacket commonly associated with fascism. Um, but, uh, yes, uh, just to clarify on this, I'm your proper old-school classical kind of left-wing. Like, none of this pusillanimous liberal ethical shopping saves the world kind of nonsense. Like, I'm the kind of left-wing where if I tell you I'm going to treat you like a princess, it means I'm going to have your family murdered in a railway siding east of Moscow and your land's expropriated in the name of the people. Like, it's that. That sort of left-wing. Um, sorry if that's uh, uh, topical. Uh, it's just... Is it too soon? I don't know. Uh, this is tricky. Uh, anyway, um, and uh, this is this is a tale of heartbreak, ladies and gentlemen. But I would like to assure you that it does have a happy ending. Uh, I myself am, am very much in love uh, with a beautiful Australian woman uh, who is uh, caring and uh, thoughtful uh, and, like uh, most vertebrates from her continent, venomous. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and the young lady who is the subject of this tale and the former object of my affections is, uh, is very happily settled uh, with the professional chocolatier. 
Uh, who I can only assume is someone who defends the 17th century French monarchy with chocolate rather than muskets. Um, uh, um, now, um, this tale takes place around five years ago, ladies and gentlemen. Wibbly, 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 wibbly. Ah, oh, flashback in time. Oh, it's 2010. Oh, I hope the Olympics uh, run to budget and uh, not incredibly disappointing. Oh, I hope there's a legacy. Oh, uh, here we are, 2010. Oh, there's a pop culture reference. There's another one. Um, and... Uh, uh, five years ago, ladies and gentlemen, I found myself uh, going out with uh, a charming young lady. Now, that in itself not a novelty, uh, though I may look like the toy surprise you'd get if you cracked open Brian Blessed like a kinder egg. Uh, I, 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 I need to stop telling jokes about my appearance. They just make me sad. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not entirely without my appeal, although selective as it is. Um, but what was new? What was new, ladies and gentlemen? What was this young lady was rich. And by rich, I mean like crazy rich, like insanely rich. Like the kind of rich that only just understands what a pie is. Um, and has to have to explain that it's basically just a quiche with a hat. Like it's that... <laughs> That sort of rich, ladies and gentlemen. Now, um, you know, those of you with ears and knowledge will have picked up by this point that I'm, I myself am quite middle class. Let's not beat around the bush here, ladies and gentlemen. I am incredibly middle class. I, I am so middle class, I once genuinely, true story, turned down the very kind offer of a threesome because I genuinely thought it more polite to cue. Okay? <laughs> this is... I cry out Mornington Crescent at the moment of climax. Like, it's really middle class. How else will people know I've won? The, um, so, um, yes. But, um, you know, and, like, because uh, I'm from uh, a town called Wilmslow, ladies and gentlemen, um, and um, it's kind of up north. It's kind of like North Cheshire, South Manchester kind of area. Has anyone heard of it at all? I mean, for those of you who haven't, like, um, it's kind of, you know, a lot of comedians have a go at where they grew up and say, like, oh, I'm this place, ah, oh, it's a shithole, ah. Oh. Um, but, you know, I, I won't. Like, you know, uh, my hometown's quite nice, you know. A bit dull, a bit tacky in places, but, you know, like, leafy, like, pleasant. Like, to give you an illustration, it's the kind of place where the shit Man United players live. Like, it's that sort of a place. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, people tend to forget that there's a middle class in the north. I mean, there isn't any more, obviously, because I've left. But, um, <laughs> but you do what you can. Um, and uh, when I was growing up, you know, I, uh, I thought my, my family and I were quite prosperous, you know, doing, doing quite well. Um, but as soon as you move down to London, like, the, the scales for this sort of thing, the goalposts just shift massively. Uh, like, like when I was growing up, it was considered, you know, quite impressive uh, to say, oh, yes, yes, no, we've uh, we, uh, just uh, been uh, on holiday to the south of France for a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty good. But in order to kind of elicit the same reaction on London scales, you have to go, ah, oh, yes, yes, yeah, no, we, uh, we owned the south of France for a couple of weeks. Yes, <laughs> yes and uh, hunted our fellow man for sport. Um, it's sport and uh, long pig ivory. Yes, yes, and Simpkins. Yes, Simpkins. Yes, release the dogs. Yes, yes, the diamond dogs. Yes, yes, and fetch me my Bowie knives. Yes, <laughs> you're ahead of me. Yes, the ones made of real David Bowie. So it's um, he better not die this fringe. Or I am so screwed. Um, <laughs> Um, um, but um, this is the thing. Like, I had, I had no idea that this young lady uh, was uh, this rich uh, when we first started going out. Like, we just sort of met through mutual friends, and it was like a nice thing, you know? It was just sort of like, ah, oh, you seem nice. Ah, oh, you seem nice as well. No, you seem like you have many fine qualities. Ah, oh, you seem like you have many fine qualities as well. Shall we nuzzle each other adorably like two Shetland ponies that have mistaken each other's faces for nose bags? <laughs> yes, yes, we shall. <laughs> It was adorable. Anyway, um, 
The day I discovered that my own sexuality was a powerful source of comedic disgust was a happy one indeed, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there we go. Uh, male heterosexuality. You're only non-threatening when you're humorous. Um, uh, yes. So, um, this is the thing. So, like I say, no idea. That, but, uh, you know, we've been going out for a couple of weeks, ladies and gentlemen. And I get an invitation to pop around her place, just kind of nipping in on the way to the park. And her house was, um, she lived in what can only be described as a mansion uh, opposite one of these countries' most prominent public schools. Um, now, a brief note at this point, ladies and gentlemen, about her parents, uh, who were the source of all of this wealth. Um, uh, her father was um, a big noise in uh, commercial property. And without wishing to get too bogged down into exactly what that means, it could be briefly summarised as the problem. Um, and her mother, uh, her mother, it does get worse, her mother was a senior civil servant under Margaret Thatcher, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, quite. Um, which meant the first thing that I saw when I walked into the mansion was partway up the stairs, a massive blown-up photograph, this big by this big, of the infant, my then-girlfriend, in the arms of Margaret Thatcher, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> It was the most powerfully unerotic sight I had ever seen in my entire life, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I don't mind admitting I experienced an inverse erection so powerful, my penis retracted into my thorax, went all the way up my spine, knocking out my eardrums, leaving a hammer and villain strip dangling on the outside, like the grimmest poppy reindeer antlers you can possibly imagine. Now, well, I'm, um, I'm normally pretty good with the mums, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I'm polite. You know, I'm charming. I, I know I, I wear a waistcoat to conceal the fact that I've literally never ironed. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm showing my arms. It's the hedge section of my equipment and my breasts. And um, that was my A cups. So, um, does that. Uh, yes, normally pretty good with the mums. You know, I'm uh, polite and charming, etc. But and I'm not above a little bit of a mm, squeeze of the knee under the table. Uh, you know, uh, receiving d- d- or giving. But um, I knew that this one would be a challenge, ladies and gentlemen. I knew this one would be a challenge. But I did my best. You know, and I uh, politely smiled and nodded my way through half an hour's worth of conversation about how urban foxes were essentially the 11th plague visited by God upon man. And uh, yes, yes, they probably are in league with the gypsies. Yes, yes. And Heather is a very lesbian flower. And it was... Um, I thought it, oh, two minutes, you say? Right, well, if you want to hear the real ending of this story, you're going to have to come and see my show. I will try and rather do this as quickly as I can. Uh, but I thought I'd done quite well, ladies and gentlemen. I thought I'd done quite well, acquitted myself admirably. How wrong I was, ladies and gentlemen, how wrong I was. Because over the course of the next few weeks, my then-girlfriend was taken on a variety of fancy shopping trips to a variety of fancy shopping places and bought a variety of fancy shopping things. Perhaps you would like this dress made of caviar. Mm, isn't that an incredibly impractical material for a dress? Yes! Yes, it is! Won't I smell like fish eggs? Yes! Yes, you will! But also money. Mm. Or perhaps you would like this super yacht. Made of slightly less super yachts. And then, <laughs> after tea, they adjourned to a rich people's tea room and they sat there stirring whatever it is that rich people stir into their tea, like the blood of the workers, presumably. And over, <laughs> and over tea, ladies and gentlemen, over tea, it was gently broached by my then girlfriend's mother to my then girlfriend. You know, perhaps, mm, that James, maybe you should, mm, he's a bit, mm, scruffy. Maybe you should, mm, break up with him. <sighs> Gasp, I know, rich people, dicks. Maybe we should burn them all. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yes. But, you know, to her credit, ladies and gentlemen, to her credit, my then-girlfriend stood up proudly in the name of, I mean, maybe not quite love at that point, but certainly mild affection and sexual adequacy. I make no bolder claims. And, um, and refused. And this process of shopping-based attrition continued for, for a number of weeks, ladies and gentlemen, until, that is, her father got involved. Now, now, 
some disproving fathers, ladies and gentlemen, might attempt to dissuade an unwanted suitor with a challenge of fisticuffs or pistols at dawn. Others might offer a full and frank exchange of views. Still others, including those who are, shall we say, more commercially minded, might offer financial incentives. Now, would that he had offered me money, ladies and gentlemen. Would that he had offered me money, because I love money. You can exchange it for goods and services, and I bloody love goods and services. Some of my favourite things are goods and services, but no. No, he was a wise man. He knew full well that if he bought off one suitor, he'd have to buy off the next, and the next, and the next. And who is to say that he would always be successful? Who is to say that the next charming young man, dressed like a, a strategically shaped King Charles Spaniel, would not swoop in uh, with a young person's rail car and two return tickets to Gretna Green and steal his daughter's love away from him? No, no. He, he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew, he knew that he would make a decisive move. Yes, if I may, on behalf of all um, unwanted suitors everywhere, paraphrase the IRA in the wake of the Brighton bombing of 1984, the attempted assassination of Margaret Thatcher, we would only have to be lucky once. He would have to be lucky every time. Now, that is not too soon. If anything, it's 35 years too late. Now, it was at this point, ladies and gentlemen, that he played his most audacious gambit. Yes put it all unread. And he offered, in exchange for, for breaking up with me, ladies and gentlemen, he offered to buy his daughter a flat. A, f- a flat in Zone 1 Central London, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> 24-hour concierge service. Views of the river. I mean, the, views of the river are presumably 24 hours a day as well, otherwise it's a bit of a waste. And a flat, ladies and gentlemen, worth 400,000 pounds. We split up shortly afterwards, what I'm assured are entirely unrelated reasons. Um, but, you know, this will happen five years ago, ladies and gentlemen, and I don't know if you've been paying attention to central London property prices over the last five years, but they've gone up a bit. Which means that at current market rates, the uh, opportunity cost of having regular and emotionally fulfilling sex with this is about £750,000. <laughs> And rising. That's what happens, ladies and gentlemen, if your sweet, sweet loving is considered a safe haven asset class by Russian oligarchs. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been James Ross. Thank you very much. Good night. Cheers. James Ross, everybody. And James is a really, really interesting, like, performer from my point of view in that when he started with us, I was, I thought it was all right. Yeah. But now he's got to a point where he's really great. And it's, like, been really great to see him develop over the years. Yeah, yeah. Because he, he did stuff around us earlier because he was at the last Apples gig right and so again the band it, our band that we used to be in yeah <laughs> and, and yeah he's, def- he's definitely he's got better and like I say this year's show was, was top it was amazing so good next one is so uh, I know Liz's episode she had a big spreadsheet and she looked through loads of stuff she did Richard Tyrone Jones's story about his dad at Christmas that he did at the Christmas Special, yeah. yeah, Christmas special a couple of years ago. Um, I've picked the fairy tale that Beck Hill told after that when she had to follow him, and it was really nice fairy tale. But when you kind of realise what it, what was going on, it's kind of about killing the boss and democratising the workplace, which was a kind of thing that I kind of liked. So yeah, I that. <laughs> no, I love that story. I'm yeah. really pleased you picked it, and, and I guess coming up to Christmas it's appropriate too yeah before I get started uh, I just thought I'd br- I've brought a, uh, a Christmas cracker so um, Lucy can I pop this Christmas cracker with you oh, Lu- Lucy what did you get in your cracker an origami crane an origami crane that's so odd that reminds me of a story that I wrote specifically <laughs> for tonight Strap in. 
The Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory in the Guangdong province of China was not an evil factory. For factories are mere buildings and therefore incapable of knowingly committing acts of evil. It was no more evil than a pillow fort or the House of Lords. (laughs) However, it is possible for a building to be possessed by evil, such as a pillow fort run by a villain or the House of Lords. (laughs) The Bai Fang Handicrafts Factory was possessed by a man called Li Wei though he preferred the Western name he had chosen for himself, Bruce McLean, who he'd mistakenly thought was the lead character of Die Hard. And Bruce Leeway McLean was a very evil man indeed. It's difficult to spot evil people these days. In fables and legends, evil usually looked like a witch or a monster. Evil often contorted its vessel to look as deformed and horrific on the outside as it did on the inside. But over time evil began to take on more accessible shapes and forms. Bruce didn't look evil at all. Quite charming, in fact. His teeth were straight and white. His eyes glistened when he smiled. And his black hair flopped at a dreamy angle that even a young Hugh Grant would envy. If Bruce were cast in a Disney film, he'd definitely look more like the prince than the baddie. But that's the thing about evil. Sometimes it's at its most dangerous when it doesn't appear to be. It was a near-impossible task to rate the most evil thing Bruce McLean did. Was it the way he never thanked anyone, even that one time when a homeless man found his wallet and returned it without taking even as much as one yarn from it? Was it how he kicked stray cats whenever he was drunk, which he often was? Was it the highly profitable business he ran, which made all its money by using child slaves to assemble cheap Christmas crackers? It was hard to say but it was probably that last one. <laughs> of course, the Baifang Handicrafts Factory hadn't always been run this way. Bruce's original workforce took pride in their jobs. It was the last port of call for all Christmas crackers. Toys, hats and jokes were placed in cardboard rolls, along with cracker snaps and then wrapped in shiny decorative paper before being packed and shipped out all across the world, ready to be sold in December, or even August in some countries. Most business owners would feel a warm glow as they imagine their products being enjoyed by millions of families over dinner. Groans and laughter would erupt as mum read out her joke, even though she stuffed up the delivery on the first attempt. Children would giggle at the way grandpa's bald head poked out the top of his slightly too large crepe paper crown. Cousins would swap toys and hide them in their knick-knack drawers, only for the collections to to be uncovered years later as they prepared to move out and begin college. Most business owners would feel success at these thoughts, but not Bruce. He wanted money. He wanted a cool house, a cool car, and for ladies to hang off him at casinos, like his favourite misremembered character, Sean Bond. (laughs) So he began to cut the wages of his workers. At first, the workers didn't seem to mind. They understood the current economic climate, so they begrudgingly accepted the changes without complaint. But greed breeds greed, and soon Bruce wanted more profit. So he continued to cut their wages, until eventually all the employees at the Baifang Handicrafts Factory were forced to move on and find work elsewhere. Suddenly, Bruce found himself in a large, empty factory with a large, empty wallet and an even larger debt. His only choice was to sell the factory. While taking inventory of his machinery one day, Bruce spotted something in the corner by a pile of rags. It was a small, delicate paper crane. 
which had been crafted from some of the shiny decorative paper. As he picked it up, the rags began to move and took the form of a young girl, no older than seven or eight. She was sleeping. He kicked her hard because he was drunk, as he often was. The girl jumped and steadied herself, calculating whether it would be best to run or fight. What are you doing in my factory? demanded Bruce. The girl slightly relaxed her position while her eyes remained alert and cautious. I'm sorry, I was tired and needed shelter. I'll leave now. Thank you for your hospitality. Bruce was surprised at her manners and gratefulness given that he had just kicked her. Who are you? Where are your parents? he asked. I'm Luli. I have no parents. I was abandoned as a baby, she replied. How have you come to live this long? asked Bruce. I've been blessed with instincts, said Luli. All my life I've known when to run, when to hide, when to hunt and when to work. As soon as the word work escaped Luli's lips, an idea exploded in Bruce's head like one of his crackers. You work? he asked. His eyes glistened and his brain cogs turned. I tell you what, how might I let you continue to shelter in my factory at night if you work for me during the day? It was true Luli had been blessed with instincts, but sadly her hunger and exhaustion overrode them on this one occasion. Had she listened to her instincts, she would have noticed the slightly off angle of Bruce's smile. She would have asked why the factory was empty. She would have seen that her fragile paper paper crane had been crushed in his fist to be cast away like the rubbish he saw it as. But she was so tired and it had been so long since anyone had offered her anything. So So she chose to ignore all the warnings and assume Bruce was acting out of kindness. Every person experiences one major crossroad in their life. Were Bruce a good man, he would have seen this as an opportunity to give something back to the world he'd so greedily taken from. But, as we established earlier, Bruce was evil. And so, having hatched a plan, and an evil one at that, he chose his path and thus his destiny. Scraping together what little money he had left, he sent ten messengers to a thousand villages where they offered Bruce's discreet services to families who found themselves in unfortunate ownership of an undesirable daughter. Either the girls weren't smart enough, weren't good-looking enough, or weren't, well, male enough. In these instances, Bruce would offer to take the girls off the hands of the parents, allowing them to try for another, better-looking, more male child for a small fee. Of course, in most villages, Bruce services were not required. The majority of parents loved their child, despite smarts, looks or gender, and on more than one occasion, his messengers were chased out of town for even suggesting their perfect daughters were unwanted. But Bruce only needed about 60 girls. In a country of over one billion people, his task was less impossible than it seemed. Within a few months, a full workforce of rejected girls had been donated to Bruce, His plan had worked perfectly. He allowed them to sleep on the factory floor in return for 18-hour payless workdays seven days a week. The girls were expected to fill an array of jobs, from cleaning Bruce's house to cooking his meals and even mixing his drinks. Every afternoon, he would watch an action movie while gulping down martinis. Shaken, not turd, he would loudly mispronounce, or shoving his glass in the direction of one of the girls and kicking a stray cat he kept in his office for the sole purpose of kicking. But their least favourite job was when he made them rub his feet. Bruce's feet were the opposite of his face, not just in terms of location on his body, but in appearance. 
It was as if all Bruce's evil had drained from his handsomely shaped head and pulled around his toes. And then he'd stepped in a dog's business and walked barefoot through the offcuts at a barber shop. The worst part was that the smell would attach itself to whoever touched his feet. Girls often lay awake all night despite their exhaustion just because they could smell Bruce's feet on their hands. But the girls rarely complained. If they did, he whipped them with a bamboo stick or worse, he threatened to throw them out. With no savings or family to return to, the girls had no choice. They couldn't go to the authorities as Bruce regularly paid them off to overlook his practices. But despite the sadness which, hang within the, which hung within the building, the Baifang Handicrafts Factory was back up and running and more productive and profitable than ever. Now, the nice thing about the world is how often it finds a way to balance itself out. For amongst his slaves, Bruce had unwittingly put together a group far, capable of far more good than he was evil. As previously mentioned, Luli had been blessed with usually very good instincts, but she'd also been blessed with the rather magical ability of creating the most beautiful and intricate paper art. She'd been taught by a kind Japanese sailor while working for a fisherman in a seaside town. She was only five at the time, but her hands were precise and fast, so she managed to temporarily make a living by fixing nets. The Japanese sailor did not like to see such a young girl working, He had a daughter back home and it made him sad to imagine her in the same position. But he couldn't take Luli with him. So one evening, when the fishing boats had gone out, he sat on the shore with her and watched the sun go down. He explained that when he was little, his grandmother used to make him paper cranes and give them to him for luck. He opened his satchel and took out a perfect little paper crane. He cupped it tight in her hands. This is for luck, he explained. But he opened up his hands to reveal the crane had become crumpled and disfigured. Sometimes our luck runs out. He took a piece of paper out of his satchel and began to fold it. That is when we must learn to make our own. Luli had been making her own luck ever since. Using whatever paper she found, she would fold and cut and create incredible creatures, objects and scenes. It had become a good way of distracting herself from the hunger or the cold whatever obstacles life continued to throw at her. There was also Ying. Ying was the oldest girl of the group at 12. She saw her age as a responsibility to the others and was usually on call having to kiss better any small injuries or bandage up the more serious ones, which was more often than you would expect in a Christmas cracker factory. She was the only girl who'd attended school before her parents gave her up and, as a result, was the only girl who could properly read and write. She would spend the early hours of each day writing short stories before work and she would spend the evenings reading them to the youngest girls just before bed. Her stories were always full of adventure and wonder and brave characters, but the best part about them was how they all ended with the heroes going home to their loving families. It wasn't long until the other girls wanted to learn how to read and write so they could come up with their own stories too. And that was how Ying found herself not only packing joke slips into cardboard rolls but also teaching on the side. And then there was May. She was also blessed. Through a happy set of coincidences involving a broken conveyor belt and a lot of head scratching, she realised she could fix nearly any machine she put her hands to. Each time something stopped working, she would come over and click her tongue while lifting up flaps, pushing cogs and poking wires. Then, after some time, she would nod slowly while chewing the inside of her cheek, which meant she'd worked out the problem. 
She would then drop to her hands and knees and crawl throughout the factory, collecting metallic bits and bobs and creating makeshift parts and tools from an assortment of leftovers and tiny plastic Christmas cracker toys. Once May worked out how to fix everything in the factory, she started making her own things. Clockwork frogs from empty food tins some of the girls had fished out of Bruce's rubbish. Dragons moulded from discarded cigarette lighters which breathed real fire. And once, a tiny battery-operated car, no bigger than a sugar cube, which she'd managed to construct from a partially destroyed watch found on the driveway outside. May's talent meant that every girl received a special gift on her birthday. Luli, Ying and May worked next to each other on the assembly line. Cardboard rolls would shoot down the conveyor belt and quick as a flash, Luli would insert a party hat, Ying a joke and May the toy. Once Ying had bravely tried to draw worldwide attention to their situation by inserting a piece of paper which said, Help! I'm trapped in a Christmas cracker sweatshop! But the cracker had been opened at a Christmas in July party in Brooklyn, New York, where the recipient just thought the hipster host was doing one of his ironic jokes again and she didn't mention it, not wanting to give him the satisfaction. (laughs) Meanwhile, as the girls grew together in their talents and friendship... Bruce McLean proceeded to grow in arrogance and gluttony, with the costs of running his factory being minimal at most and the quality of production being maximum at least, Bruce had found himself with a lot of disposable income. He'd bought a cool house and a cool car and he hung out at casinos. However, that was where the similarities between him and Sean Bond ended. His audaciousness bordered on foolishness. He would lose exceedingly large amounts of money at the blackjack table, not even while playing. He just had a bad habit of keeping loose cash on him, which would fall out of his pocket whenever he fished out his hip flask, which was often. The false confidence his newfound fortune provided had also made him conceited, so any woman who dared showed an interest in him was immediately dismissed as not good enough. Any pangs of loneliness or guilt were immediately remedied by a steady supply of action films, martinis and foot rubs from his child slaves. On one particularly long and arduous afternoon, while Lily stuffed paper crowns into cardboard tubes with the precision and speed of a heart surgeon on their eighth Red Bull for the day, she felt something she'd not experienced for quite some time. An instinct. She paused and looked up, narrowing her eyes. Ying and May noticed the missing hats in their cardboard rolls. What's wrong, Lily? asked Ying. I'm not sure. Something's not right. It's too... It's too quiet, said Luli. And she was right. By now, Bruce would have stepped out onto the internal balcony extending from his upper-level office and demanded one of the girls come rub his feet. It was usually the first thing he wanted after his lunchtime martini. Should we investigate, said May nervously. They'd never gone into Bruce's office uninvited before. Once, Bruce had caught one of the girls using his bathroom because she didn't want to have an accident on on the floor. And he'd whipped her mercilessly across the back of her thighs so that she couldn't sit down for two weeks, never mind on the toilet. None of the girls fancied that idea. I'll go, said Luli, gulping. She couldn't ignore her instinct again, not after what happened last time. We'll come too, said Ying. May nodded. The three girls climbed the stairwell up to Bruce's office and gently tapped on the door. Mr McLean, whispered Luli. Mr. McLean, did you want your foot rub? She asked, slightly louder. Nothing. Mr. McLean, I just need to check the books, said Ying as she opened the door, preparing herself for a whipping. 
but none of them had quite prepared themselves enough for what they would face. Bruce McLean wasn't wearing any trousers or a shirt. He was in his boxer shorts and vest, and he was dead. Bruce often undressed after lunch. He found his rich, excessive meals gave him the sweat, so he was more, usually more comfortable just to watch his afternoon movies in his underwear. However, he didn't usually watch the movies from the floor or with a big purple face. Had Bruce thought to at least give the girls some first aid training, they would have known to clear his windpipe, remove the olive, which had been lodged there from a reckless martini gulp, and begin CPR. Had they been taught how to resuscitate, Bruce would have survived to continue his tyranny. But they hadn't, so he didn't. Every person experiences one major crossroad in their life. Were Luli, Ying and May naive girls, they would have reported Bruce's death to the corrupt local authorities, who would have assumed the girls had killed him in revenge and had them jailed for life. But, as we established earlier, Luli, Ying and May were blessed. And so, having hatched a plan, and a good one at that, they chose their path and thus their destiny. Now, I have a machine gun. Ho, ho. read out Alan Rickman on the flat screen television mounted on the wall of Bruce's office. Had any of them seen Die Hard the whole way through, they would have realised how cool that timing was. But they hadn't. (laughs) So they didn't. With Bruce gone, the girls began running the factory to their liking, which meant ceasing business for one week. During this time, the company went through a rather sudden revamp, When the Bai Fang Handicrafts factory reopened, it specialised in luxury handmade Christmas crackers. Each luxury handmade Christmas cracker contained a beautifully intricate piece of paper art, a short story, and a carefully assembled toy made from recycled parts from the local scrapyard. Every artwork, story and toy was put together by one of the girls under the supervision of Luli, Ying and Mei. And finally, just before the rolls were wrapped in their shiny decorative paper... Luli would, would insert a small, delicate paper crane she had personally made into every cracker. For good luck, of course. The crackers became famous worldwide and highly in demand. Every celebrity simply had to have one for their Christmas party. Packs of six would sell for thousands of US dollars, and you wouldn't be surprised to see them fetching even more on eBay as it drew closer to December 25. With all the money, Luli, Ying and May were able to extend the factory to include a separate bedroom and a proper bed for every girl. They even built an ensuite for the little girl whose thighs had been whipped. Every girl was given a generous weekly allowance and a proper wage, which went into a savings fund for when they turned 18. Teachers were hired to live at the factory where they tutored the girls in everything from language to maths to science to philosophy to sports and music. As the girls learnt, they uncovered more and more of their talents – The factory began to turn out child prodigies in the forms of musicians, chefs and scientists who became just as, if not more so, successful as its Christmas crackers. Now, you might be wondering what happened to the deceased Bruce McLean. Well, like the girls, he had no family. Whether this was because he was evil or was what had caused him to become evil, no one will ever know. Unlike the girls, he certainly never made his own family. And so, when he died, no one really noticed. Some of his previous business contacts had thought to ask when the factory suddenly changed, but in all honesty, they didn't care. 
The only act of kindness Bruce McLean ever performed was when his body provided much-needed nutrition to the stray cats who loitered around the factory. (laughs) On Christmas Day that year, in the Guangdong province of China, a group of blessed girls in a factory sat down to their first of many celebratory feasts. On the same day, a guest in Brooklyn, New York, politely declined to kiss the hipster host under the mistletoe, even though he insisted it was ironic. And in a loving home in Yokohama, Japan, a kind sailor snapped a Christmas cracker with his young daughter and was delighted to find a small, delicate paper crane. Thank you very much. Uh, next one I've picked is um, so it's from the first season I've not picked much from the first season but there's this one uh, it's one song and it's by Grace Petrie and it's Farewell to Welfare really like the song really like what she did for us and this song in particular like a couple of months after she played it for us I found myself signing on so it kind of struck a chord I've mentioned my girlfriend um, tonight um, I am gay uh, one of the things that made me angriest with about this government uh, was when Theresa May was, uh, was appointed Minister, uh, Home Secretary um, and also Minister for Women, uh, lol, uh, and Equalities, uh, ruffle. Uh, and as both a woman and a gay person, I found that to be pretty fucking insulting. Um, so I wrote this song about it and um, yeah, I wrote it almost two years ago and terrifyingly almost everything in it has come true. Uh, this is called Farewell to Welfare. My name is Grace Petrie. Um, feel free to follow me on Twitter if you want to know about the mundane goings-on of my life. <laughs> I am at gracepetrie.com. Uh, you've been really lovely. Thank you for today. I've had a lovely time. It's been a great night. Thank you. It's never too late to recapture the Section 28 And it's never too wild To slash benefits for single mums The only victim is the child And oh, who's gonna be My Martin Luther King And I'll say, who's gonna be My Harvey Milk And on the steps of Parliament They're demonstrating But what's the use when they're all cut From the same eaten silk I'll say farewell Farewell to beat so let's put more money into the jubilee and a millionaire in Downing Street and someone's got to foot the bill let's start with the disabled and the mentally ill and if I keep my receipts can I claim back the mistakes and the lives ruined by this government or in another 18 years of budget cuts and tears will the people pay for those just like we pay Democracy.
Grace was amazing. She was probably my, like my favourite thing in the first season. Uh, yeah, she f- performed on the last, the last show we did, I think. So right. next one. Next one. Okay. So next one is a storyteller that we met in Edinburgh 2014, that was in the slot after us and ended up doing sort of quite a few bits and bobs for us when other people didn't turn up during the run. Right, and an honorary the, member of the team. Yeah, an yeah. amazing storyteller. I think I sh- saw his show four times, largely because I liked it, but also because I was stuck in the venue at that time between shows that I was teching and once because I was recording it. And this is a story he told. I grew up in a town called Western Supermare, which is a lovely place to have left. It's not the most <laughs> dilapidated of British seaside towns. It's not the most garish. But it is the only one I've ever been to where the entirety of the tourism industry just exists to distract you from noticing that you're not at the beach. Because <laughs> at Western Supermare, the mud flats just slope down to the brackish estuary waters of the Bristol Channel, which rock backwards and forwards. And then the tropical horizon is nothing but the windswept shores of South Wales. <laughs> And so the uh, promenades and the uh, candy floss and the donkey rides and the peak caps with plastic turds on them and the boxer shorts with latex bums bursting out. Yeah, you're nodding. You've seen the seaside in this country. The, uh, all of the spectacle is just there to stop you from realising that there is no beach. <laughs> but if you walk away from all of that, if you stroll down my memory lane past the copper cascades of the penny falls and the arcades, you get to the reason why I, as a small child, was brought to live in Western Supermare. You get to my stepdad's museum. And like most 
local history, local interest museums, it wasn't exactly riveting. They did have a display cabinet full of rivets. They had three life-size fibreglass replicas of the great pillar boxes of Western Supermare. They had an artist's impression of what a stuffed bear would look like if they actually had one. But, but in the back rooms, the back rooms of the museum that I, as the son of your curator, had access to, that was where all the good stuff was. That was like the final scene of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's just full of incredible boxes of priceless artefacts. There were, um, there were bits of occult paraphernalia that had been looted from the lodges of the Golden Dawn back when Mahathas McGregor warred with Aleister Crowley. There was uh, the remnants of the experimental weapons that were fired during World War I off Western Supermare's piers to see if they could hit South Wales. Uh, and, and there was the mummy. The mummy slumbered in a sarcophagus that was a chest freezer. I'd never seen the mummy, but as a small child, I was fascinated by the thought of it. The, the mummy, to fill you in, was the corpse of someone who two or three hundred years ago had wandered out onto the mudflats, probably looking for the beach, had sunk into the salty, sandy ooze and had been preserved. Now... When a body gets dug up by archaeologists after two or three thousand years, they get really overexcited. But two or three hundred years, nobody cares. <laughs> so whoever had dug up the body had donated it to the museum. And what was worse, they'd frozen it first. And if you freeze a body, you can never really let it defrost. Or else. As happened one wondrous hot summer at the start of the 90s, I was about ten years old, and I think a cleaner must have unplugged the freezer to plug the hoover in and not switch things back over. And the first that we detected of the mummy's resurrection was the smell that crept out amongst the display cabinets. And my stepdad was chosen to dispose of the body. And because he was uh, always looking for new and novel ways to bond with me, his stepson, he brought me along. <laughs> it was the summer holidays. I didn't see the mummy. That would have been traumatic. It was all wrapped up in black bin bags and put into the boot of our vehicle. Um, <laughs> we were driving a blue Volkswagen camper van, which I used to affectionately refer to as the Big Blue Fun Bus. And I got up in the front next to my stepdad and we drove to a local crematorium. And, and I probably didn't appreciate this at the time, but it's been true all through my life. Crematorium staff are just really up for anything that breaks up the routine of their days. They, they're really game for a laugh. So they were really up for helping out. But they gave us the, the single sheet of paper, the minimum form you had to fill in to arrange a cremation. And we filled it out. And the last line just read, death certificates. And we couldn't tick that box because we didn't have a death certificate. We'd been, never been in any doubt that the mummy was dead but they couldn't burn unless the bureaucratic process was fulfilled so so then we had to drive from we went from gp surgery to gp surgery trying to find anyone who was qualified to complete a death certificate and doctors unlike crematorium staff do not like the routine of their days interrupted <laughs> by zany museum <laughs> stories so they kept moving us along and the sun beat down on the big blue fun bus, turned it into an oven. And in the boot, the mummy was suppurating and the yellow liquid was pooling and pouring out of the black bin bags. And inside the van, the air was turning from rancid to unbearable. 
We would have to park up every 20 or so metres to go staggering out and get a fresh lung full of air. Eventually, we did, uh, we did find someone who filled in the certificate. They wafted a stethoscope in the vague direction of the bin bags. Uh, and then we went back to the crematorium. The funeral pyres were fired up and we scattered the mummy's ashes to the winds. Museums closed down now. There's your tragedy. There were successive years of cancel cuts and culture's a very easy offering on the altar of austerity. And maybe that's right. Maybe the taxpayer shouldn't be paying for rivets and fiberglass pillar boxes and And if I really wanted to leave you in that tragic space, I'd stop the story there. But I, I kind of don't, because you seem so lovely. Instead, I want to leave you with this image. There's a scrapyard on a hill that overlooks Western Supermare. And somewhere in there, there is the relic, the, the shell of a blue Volkswagen camper van, the big blue fun bus. And in the height of summer, when the sun beats down on it, out of the upholstery, there comes this really curious smell and passers-by they wonder what it could possibly be that taints the air and only you and I know the truth thank you yeah Tim Ralphs is a, a great friend of Sunday Tragedy one of the two people who have a who are not part of the team who've got a, got a t-shirt. t-shirt yeah yeah Okay, so this is a spoken word artist. Again, it's somebody we saw in Edinburgh 2014 and we got her to play in Edinburgh this year. Um, And she's a spoken word artist and has music in the background. Her show was amazing. It's called Burning Books. And I saw it on the last day that it was running. Uh, So, like, for the rest of the run, had this really good show that wanted to recommend to people but couldn't because she'd finished. Yeah, I saw it with you, I think. It was really frustrating because it was so good, but she only did a very short run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, And it's just green and uh, shows about education policy and the way the Conservatives mess up, are messing up our education system. Which has some resonance with you, I guess, because you work in education. Yeah, I, I work in... I've worked in... Pretty much in education through the whole way. So I, I did a job where I was working with kids from nursery school up until sixth form, and I now work in an FE college and teach kids after mainstream school up until sort of second year of degree. Um, so I've seen like the whole way through, and now I'm currently in a position where I kind of get the kids that have been failed by the main, by the education system a lot, and yeah, so that the show struck a chord really Jess Green Um, cool yes hello I'm Jess Um, I'm a poet um, and my um, like Dave was saying my show that I brought to Edinburgh this year is um, it's called Burning Books and it's quite focused around education it's set in an inner city secondary school I'm quite interested in education um and kind of tying in with a the theme of, uh, of, of tragedy, um, our current education secretary, Nikki Morgan, um, has this rhetoric that she trips out quite a lot about um, the, the idea of GCSE students studying arts and humanities subjects. Um, she says that if you are 15 years old and you choose to study an arts and humanities subject, you will be held back for the rest of your life. That is a direct quote from the education secretary. Um, and she believes that all, all students should be studying STEM subjects. So it's like science, technology, engineering, maths, um, because in that 
that way you will be more valuable to society and you will earn more. And obviously, because money makes the world go round, you'll be much happier as well. Um, and I kind of think that, um, without wanting to be melodramatic about it, to say that sort of thing to a 14-year-old who just wants to study art because he likes art or wants to study music because she likes music is, is really mean and really cruel. Um, so I wrote a poem about it and it's called uh, Held Back by Nicky Morgan. It's post-show. The lights have come up. Empty plastic wine glasses litter the floor. I'm in the bar next door trying to calm down, rein the adrenaline in, go through the couple of mistakes I made, see how they match up to yesterday and put steps in place to rectify them for tomorrow night. And he sidles up to me with a grin. Is this your hobby or something? No, it's my job. No way, he says. You get paid for this. This is how you make a living. There are kids starving in the world and whilst we pay our taxes, you punts about on stage. His argument is nonsensical and it's flawed and it's not like I haven't heard it before. It's just that this time it seems to hurt harder and sting faster because now Nicky Morgan has added fuel to the fire of their argument that this isn't a real job. So I walk away. I swallow my reply. Not thinking about the three hours I spent rehearsing that afternoon or the 90-minute tech run through this evening or the four trips to the toilets before the lights came up because I thought I might be sick. The twice-weekly meetups in rehearsal rooms, the days and evenings with blank pages of frustration, the 10 minutes stolen in a school car park trying to get a piece finished for a deadline, every street run down to make the last train in time, the nights out ended early and the friends cancelled on to finish work that couldn't wait, every funding application scrawled across and the thank you but unfortunately replies, the clock at midnight, we've still not got something we can agree is right or the bags under our eyes when I say let's just go through this one more time or the days disappeared into nights trying to learn it line for line and all of that for Nicky Morgan to tell me the choices I have made will hold me back for the rest of my life promote science please do and maths and technology and engineering they're important and have their own issues but in the rare position that you hold our young people might actually listen to you don't write off great swathes of something so crucial to our day to day don't insult the teachers alongside the facts and the figures, teach the stories and the sounds and the pictures and the message. Do something you love and work hard at it, whatever it is. Don't make some broad brush statement about arts and humanities limiting somebody's life choices. Because you're the mother of the girl at my school who said, don't go to university and study creative writing. Nobody makes a living from being a writer and ended up some dead-end job wishing you'd done maths. So she did maths and she was good at it and she became an accountant. And I saw her on a train last Tuesday and she said she earns 60 grand a year and wakes up most days fighting the urge to top herself. You're my old boss who says, well, it's a nice hobby, isn't it? But is that really how you want to spend your spare time? Getting up at five just to write? Anyway, the bags under your eyes are affecting productivity you make it sound like something dirty to be done in garages and attic rooms the occasional rundown funding starved library not something that lets us talk down the generations and back through history from the fingerprint molded shapes and the walls of caves to the place that brought culture to the day-to-day -day peasant and drunkard in the theater pits every fear and anger fueled war poet from charge to the light brigade to siegfried to soon how else will we have taught world war one in the days before youtube the teenage girl terrified in a german attic room and every child who will empathy from a book that teaches strength and courage against the worst of enemies, the poem that attacks a stuck-up out-of-touch politician and the pints raised in recognition of the stories told by folk musicians, the boy wrapped up in autism who struggles to communicate through emotion but can tell you how he feels the colour and sound, or the refugee too scared to speak who finds words on the lips of hip-hop artists, begins writing her own lyrics and discovers what her art is. Don't belittle this. By all means, stand at your lectern and spout the opinions you think will win you votes like they all do. But don't fearmonger, and don't guilt trip. Don't tell the 14-year-old with a form to fill in that if you love what you do, there is ever any reason to stop doing it. Thank you.
thank you. Um, so I'm going to just do one more piece. Um, I forgot that when uh, Dave asked me to do this gig, I promised to bring uh, my whole band along. Um, and I just remembered now, um, and, and luckily uh, Scott, who is my guitarist, um, did have his guitar. So we're going to do quite a sort of a stripped back version of, of one of the pieces from the show. Cool. He only found out about this like seven minutes ago, so. <laughs> He's been told to shadow me and see I've never really been sure what that means like one step behind in the dark I don't like it I ask him if he wants to lead his own activities and he seems keen really keen but most of the time he is stumbling blindly unprepared and it pains not to show it to me and this morning he's given them a task to set a scene and there's this girl dressed in pink who's stressed a week how much she hates sports. She just wants to play the violin and that's fine because it's summer. And this room is classroom dark but this is meant to be the opposite of school and she's enjoyed it. From day one when she came in with attitude like a cricket back to the face but now she's easy and loose. She's written out every argument she's never had with her mum. She's grinning and scribbling to the final seconds when I say look we've really got to go now. No miss please just listen to this last bit see I found a way to say it. And she has. So I do. And we sit that way every day until her phone beeps, reminding her she has got friends outside and things to do that aren't this. Because it's summer. And she is dressed like every day is a scene from Stand By Me. And the things she says, oh God, I wish that was the way my brain still behaved. Because she's excited by every hour. Nothing's been tainted. Her tummy never knots for very long. She's oblivious to the bad days. When it hurts so blunt and raw, it's just easier to be asleep. But that's not yet. Because right now, she believes that she can be anything. And God, don't need to tell kids more often you can do anything. But this afternoon, she's got to do this task she's been given by him. See, he's told her she's got to describe a football match. I can't. She's back to day one, stubborn and stressed, heels dug in concrete. You can, he says. I can't. You can, he says. Just right from your soul. Her soul. She is 13. She likes music, tree climbing, and One Direction. And even in the depths of my soul, which I think has a little bit more experience than hers, I cannot find one ounce of inspiration that makes one to map out the intricacies of Leicester's Walker Stadium. But he thinks he's convinced her. Turns his back on the shutters she's pulled down and says to the boy next to her in an entirely different tone of voice, bruv, you got to describe the Rio Olympics. Yeah, says the boy, copying his shoulder shrugs and back slaps. Yeah, he says, imagine it. The heat, the girls, the female runners with their bouncing tits, those bums and breasts and hot pants drenched and clenched in sweats. And now they are shouting. They are whooping, coughing, whistling, high-fiving. And this goes on for minutes. For minutes and minutes minutes and her eyes meet mine her pen is down she has written a few lines see she's actually tried to describe this place she has never even seen or smelt or dreamt of in the air it is aggressive it's brick hard and his female supervisor is laughing along catching every word and the boy he has completely forgotten his task too wrapped up and excited about being part of this bonding camaraderie yeah he says like you know when she wants it because she's wearing that dress all short and shaking it and me and her, we are the only ones not speaking. I've lost the volume, like that dream when someone grabs you and you're screaming, but there's nothing but silence in your mouth. And I want to shout, I am sorry. I don't all see you like this. 
Yeah, some of them do. And that is why we chip away, we fight this every fucking day, but don't think there is nothing more to you than this. Don't think your flesh is where it stops. But she is roadblocked. She has stopped and looked around, and now she is looking down, saying, well, I only wore this because I wanted to be comfy. I only wore this because I wanted to climb that tree on Belgrave Park and my friends got to the top of. I only wore this because it was the quickest thing to get off so I could be first in the pool. Thank you. Chess Green, everybody. Yeah, it's a great show. I, I also love it. Next one? Yeah. My next pick, Scottish harp player. Again, another performer we've had in Edinburgh. I The first band I massively got into and the band that made me pick up a guitar was Nirvana and we had this uh, sort of young Scottish harp player and singer-songwriter in Edinburgh 2013 uh, in Fiddler's Elbow and she did a cover of this song that totally blew me away and it was song I love anyway a cover of it was really beautiful and it's Josie Rose Duncan with a cover of um, All Apologies by Nirvana
Yeah, I mean, Josie is amazing and it's been great to manage to get her twice at Edinburgh. We didn't manage to get her this year. So, my next pick is, it's an act that we met in Edinburgh this year, uh, in 2015, and they seem to be everywhere we went to, and it's a song of theirs that was kind of an earworm certainly for me through most of the festival and then a video appeared for it online as well and it spent a lot of time stuck in my head during Edinburgh and after and it's not especially suitable for work the song Sock Puppet by the band uh, well by the sort of electro duo Sticky Biscuits We were on another date It was getting rather late I brought you to your door Like so many nights before But as you turned to say goodbye I thought I'd give it one more try And I leaned over and I whispered in your ear, my dear Would you like to be my sock puppet? Show me your content, let me fist fuck it. Would you let me linger with my palm and all my fingers so deep inside of you? But that's not what you would let me do. You wouldn't be my sock puppet. You told me to buzz off and go shove it. So I went home all alone, feeling quite forlorn and stayed up watching porn. (laughs) Then a few weeks later, you invited me for tea. We sat there quite politely with your extended family. You never told me that your grandma looked like Helen Mirren. I felt something stirring. And since you had said no, I thought I'd go and give it a go. Can you guess what I did? (laughs) Mrs. Appleby? Would you like to be my sock puppet? Would you like to feel my hand up it? Even though you're old and wrinkly, I could make your eyes all twinkly if you just let me try. And they say to try it once before you die. Be my sock puppet. Like I'm Jim Henson and you're the Muppet Would you let me slide my hand deep inside Cause that's where I like to hide my keys and my wallet and my phone Be my sock puppet I'm pretty sure that you'd love it And now she can't get enough of fitting me like a glove Yeah, I love Sticky Biscuits. They were like one of my favourite things we discovered at Edinburgh this year. Yeah, yeah, they were great. Their show was amazing, and yeah, and they were really nice as well, which was good. And my last one. So my last one is is another friend of the show. He's another performer that we've had on every season, in both Edinburgh and London, and he performed for us this year. The thing of his that I've picked is a reading from is it Moomin Valley in November yeah that sounds yeah. right yeah, 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 yeah so I know it's Moomin something that you two are Moomin fans we are Moomin heads yeah 
kind of been exposed to it sort of for the first time <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah and it's uh, he certainly mentioned when he did it uh, he did it at the time it was like the last week of the fringe and everyone was packing up and I kind of thought this was a good one to sort of finish on because it's about winter and it's about things ending in winter um, and as this is the sort of end of our or temporary end of our regular podcast yeah. but again with winter the promise with winter is that stuff will happen in the future again and yeah, that's a nice, spring happens that's a nice thing to be thinking of yeah. James Mackay reading from Moomin Valley in November I, I came to this fringe two weeks ago as someone with a really cute idea to do a little show with Moomins in it, thinking maybe I'll pick up some Moomin fans. I salute you now as leader of the new religion, it turns out. There aren't just some Moomin fans. There are Moomin fans <laughs> that turn up 20 minutes early and sit. And uh, I, got pulled up, I got pulled up today because it's called the boy with the Moomin tattoo, and my tattoo is, in fact, of Snufkin. And I had someone pull me up, go, that's not a Moomin tattoo, and get really angry because I got, like, got it wrong and didn't come to see it. So in the interest of this, I'm going to read to you from the sacred text itself, Moomin Valley in November. This is the most, this is the most depressing thing you will ever read or be having ever be given to read as an eight-year-old no really no you don't know what's coming you don't know how sad this is um if people got tissues you know, you're gonna need them chapter one snufkin this is also dedicated by the way to the fact i'm quite sad because at the end of this week we're all gonna have to pack up and go home right we're all gonna have to leave it's the last week i know so that's also about this Early one morning in Moomin Valley, Snufkin woke up in his tent with the feeling that autumn had come and that it was time to break camp. Breaking camp in this way comes with a hop, skip and a jump. All of a sudden, everything is different. And if you're going to move on, you're careful to make use of every single minute. You pull up your tent pegs and douse the fire quickly before anyone can stop you or start asking questions. You start running, pulling on your rucksack as you go and finally you're on your way and suddenly quite calm, like a solitary tree with every single leaf completely still. Your camping site is an empty rectangle of bleached grass. Later in the morning, your friends wake up and say, he's gone away. Autumn's coming. Snufkin padded along calmly. The forest closed round him and it began to rain. The rain fell on his green hat and on his raincoat, which was also green. It pittered and pattered everywhere, and the forest wrapped him in a gentle and exquisite loneliness. There were many valleys along the coast. The mountains rolled down to the sea in long stately curves to promontories and bays which cut deep into the wild country. In one of these valleys, a fillyjonk lived all by herself. Snufkin had met Melly Philly Jonks in his time and knew that they had to do things in their own way and according to their own silly rules. But he was never so quiet as when he went past the house of a Philly Jonk. The fence had straight and pointed posts and the gate was locked. The garden was quite empty. The clothesline had been taken in and the woodpile had gone. There was no hammock and no garden furniture. There was none of the charming disorder that generally surrounds a house in summer. No rake, no bucket, no left-behind hat, no saucer for the cat's milk. None of the other homely things that lie around waiting for the next day and make the house look welcoming and lived in. Philly Jonk knew that autumn had arrived and she shut herself up inside. Her house looked completely closed and deserted, but she was there, deep, deep inside, behind the high impenetrable walls and the dense fir trees that hid her windows. The quiet transition from autumn to winter is not a bad time at all. 
It's a time for protecting and securing things and for making sure you've got in as many supplies as you can. It's nice to gather together everything you possess as close to you as possible, to store up your warmth and your thoughts and burrow yourself into a deep hole inside, a core of safety where you can defend what is important and precious and your very own. Then the cold and the storms and the darkness can do their worst. They can grope their way up the walls looking for a way in, but they won't find one. Everything is shut and you sit inside, laughing in your warmth and your solitude, for you have had foresight. There are those who stay at home and those who go away, and it has always been so. Everyone can choose for himself, but he must choose while there is still time and never change his mind. Philly Jonk started to beat carpets at the back of her house. She put all she'd got into it with a measured frenzy, and everybody could hear that she loved beating carpets. Snufkin walked on, lit his pipe, and thought, they're waking up in Moomin Valley. Moomin Papa is winding up the clock and tapping the barometer. Moomin Mama is lighting the stove. Moomin Troll goes out onto the veranda and sees that my camping site is deserted. He looks in the letterbox down at the bridge, and it's empty too. I forgot my goodbye letter. I didn't have time. But all the letters I write are the same. I'll be back in April. Keep well. I'm going away, but I'll be back in the spring. Look after yourself. He knows, anyway. And Snufkin forgot all about Moomintroll as easily as that. At dusk, he came to the long bay that lies in perpetual shadow between the mountains. Deep in the bay, some early lights were shining where a group of houses huddled together. No one was out in the rain. It was here that the Hemulan, Mimble and Gaffsey lived, and under every roof lived someone who had decided to stay put, people who wanted to stay indoors. Snufkin crept past their backyards, keeping in the shadows, and he was as quiet as he could be because he didn't want to talk to a soul. Big houses and little houses all very close to each other. Some were joined together and shared the same gutters and the same dustbins, looked in at each other's windows and smelt their food. The chimneys and high tables and the drain pipes, and below, the well-worn paths leading from door to door. Snufkin walked quickly and silently and thought, Oh, all you houses, how I hate you! It was almost dark now. The Hemulin's boat lay pulled up under the alders, and there was a grey tarpaulin covering it. A little higher up lay the mast, the oars, and the rudder. They were blackened and cracked by the passing of many a summer, but they had never been used. Snufkin shook himself and walked on, but Toft, curled up inside the Hemulin's boat, heard his steps and held his breath. The sound of Snufkin's footsteps got farther and farther away, and all was quiet again, and only the rain fell on the tarpaulin. The very last house stood all by itself under a dark green wall of fir trees, and here the wild country really began. Snufkin walked faster and faster, straight into the forest, then... The door of the last house opened a chink and a very old voice cried, Where are you off to? I don't know, Snufkin replied. The door shut again and Snufkin entered his forest with a hundred miles of silence ahead of him. Thank you. Moomins forever. And James is the other owner of a Stand-Up Tragedy t-shirt. Him and Tim uh, are the honorary members of the, sh- of the team. And yeah, we're going to take this year off, kind of. Well, I'm taking a year off, but it's not exactly a year off because we're doing Stand-Up Tragedy Presents and yeah. you're going to be there recording those probably. But yeah, we hopefully will like come back again after this year. 
So yeah, I mean, is there any last thoughts you have, I guess, like as we take this year off? Any last thoughts? I'm, I'm not sure. I've really enjoyed doing stand-up tragedy, and I'm looking forward to whatever we end up doing in the future, whatever format that takes. And I'm sure we'll there'll be stand-up tragedy stuff going on, and I'm sure we'll work on other projects in the future as well. Absolutely. So, well, thank you very much, Hal, right. for your choices. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So the Stand Up Tragedy podcast will be back in 2016, but less frequently. And the live shows will be having a little bit of a break. But like I said at the beginning of the show, look out on the 18th of February for Stand Up Tragedy Presents at the Dog Star in Brixton, where I'll be doing my show, What About the Men, Mansplaining Masculinity, and Jambi McGrath will be doing her show, A Last Dance with My Father. Both of those shows are very dark and tragic, which is appropriate because of our night. Uh, They're also about, you know, some real personal, real things. And so come and listen to our personal, real things and see what you think. Follow Stand Up Tragedy on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. Like us or friend us on Facebook. Make friends with a tragedy. Check out our website, www.standuptragedy.co.uk. We're fully intending to come back and do more shows in 2017. Maybe go to Edinburgh again. I don't know. That's in the future. But Stand Up Tragedy is not dead. We're just sleeping. So, for now, the tragedy is over it's time to go it's time to go it's time to go it's time to go
This podcast has been produced by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. Thank you.